read the news, a strong earthquake shook parts of Indonesia's main island of Java and tourist island of Bali on Friday, just yesterday. And you may have read how I'm reading from a, uh, a news release here. It says, causing panic, but there were no immediate reports of serious damage or casualties. The U.S. Geological Survey said the magnitude 7.0 quake was centered 59.8 miles north of Tuban, a coastal city in East Java province, at a depth of 369 miles. Now, earthquakes show how, how small and how powerless we are, don't they? In a few moments, the natural elements of the earth that God has created can destroy a lifetime of our work. But these things can be overcome, can't they? I mean, in a matter of months and years, we can rebuild our homes, we can rebuild our workplaces, even if they've been reduced to rubble. So a quote from uh, a Japanese news source talking about earthquakes. They, they have certainly a, the danger, ever-present danger. And the source quoted this, or read, uh, mentioned this. Southern California has, with ours, the finest earthquake warning system available, yet we still are a bit helpless. Fancy advanced warning systems have helped very little in knowing exactly when an earthquake will come. They've only told us an earthquake is likely to happen here or there. Now, there are things that you can do to prepare for earthquakes. Emergency drills, for example, so people know what to do. Uh, preparation of emergency supplies. So you can do those things. But the most important key to surviving earthquakes happens long before they happen. And that key is, is building codes so that the buildings are earthquake-proof. Now, there's also an article in Reuters yesterday. Again, this is dated April 14th, 2023, 8.15 yesterday morning. And it talks or writes about, the author writes about the earthquakes in Turkey. The headline is this. After earthquake, Istanbul gripped by fear that bigger disaster awaits. And the dateline is Istanbul. The deadliest earthquake in Turkey's modern history has reawakened fears on the other side of the country that Istanbul is an even bigger disaster waiting to happen, sending hundreds of thousands scrambling to find safer homes. Some 5 million of the 16 million residents of Turkey's largest city live in risky homes, official data show, given it lies just north of a fault line crossing the Marmara Sea in the northwest of the country. Since tremors devastated the southeast on February 6th, Killing more than 50,000, anxiety has gripped the metropolis and revived memories of a 1999 earthquake that killed 17,000 in the region. Tens of thousands of buildings collapsed in the February quake, drawing accusations that lax building standards across Turkey generally had contributed to the disaster and fueling concerns about the soundness of many aging buildings in Istanbul. According to a 2019 report by seismologists, a 7.5 magnitude earthquake similar to the one in February would at least moderately damage 17% of the 1.17 million buildings in Istanbul, which straddles the Bosphorus Strait dividing Europe and Asia. Many of those unable to move have instead sought peace of mind by requesting surveys to determine their building safety, with some 70% of buildings constructed before the building code was sharply tightened in 2000. Some 1.5 million homes are considered at risk in the city, 
Urban Planning Minister Murat Kuram said this week. According to official data, an average of more than three people live in each household, meaning up to five million live in these vulnerable properties. Over the past 50 years, a lot of advances have been made in making buildings that are earthquake-proof, at least to a certain degree. The important factors are proper structural support and good foundations. In an earthquake, if your foundation is sound, if your structure is solid, you've at least got a chance that the damage will be limited. But if it's not, you could see your house crumble to the ground. There's a spiritual lesson in all of this for us. It's one that can actually concerns our, our spiritual survival. I want to go back to a scripture that was read in the telecast by a virtual version of Mr. Weston. Luke chapter 6, and we'll read verse, verse 46. We'll read this parable again where Christ says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Luke 6, verse 47, Whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it, for it was founded on the rock. As members of God's church, we must be laying a good foundation personally. And, and we must be connected to the ultimate foundation, bolted down, concreted in, locked into the foundation if we are going to survive the spiritual earthquakes, the tsunamis, the cyclones that come into our lives, forces that can shake us down to our very foundation. So what is our spiritual foundation? After today, I believe you'll know the answer, and in fact, I'll bet you already do. That begs a second question. How strong is your foundation? How strong is my foundation? As we begin the new year on the sacred calendar, we've examined ourselves for sin through the days of unleavened bread. Perhaps now is a good time to stop and do an inspection of our own foundation. Make sure that it's sound, that we're firmly connected to it, and that we aren't built on sand. So the question is, are we rock-solid and earthquake-proof? And I think that makes a good title. Now, there's an interesting thing about foundations. They're they're composed of different parts. First, you need to have footers, uh, trenches that are dug and, and filled in with concrete block and or concrete, depending, to give the slab extra strength under underneath it. And if it's a huge building, these will be these massive, huge pillars driven in with pile drivers. One time I lived in a house immediately adjacent to a construction site where they were using pile drivers to drive these these concrete uh, posts deep into the ground to set up a big, huge hotel. And they went on and on 24 hours a day for days on end and... uh, and it was almost like, if you've ever heard pile drivers, you know what I'm talking about. It goes, there's a, a chain, it goes, and you know what's coming next. It's like being on a roller coaster, you know, up that first hill, boom, boom, boom. And then, and you know it's coming, you know it's coming, and it goes on and on. But that's what they need to do to have a foundation that will 
that will support the building. In addition, long iron pieces called rebar will be laid down, interlacing the, the concrete foundation to give it added strength. Sometimes posts will be made with pre-stressed, uh, twisted rebar. And the next essential element in a good foundation is, is concrete. Now, this is simplified, but the concrete itself is, is very important. All concrete is not the same. Uh, concrete's a mix of, of lime and sand and gravel and water. Um, today, they use fibers and other chemicals even to give it strength. <clears throat> but these ingredients are mixed in slightly different proportions depending upon what you're building, how much weight it will bear, what it will be used for. When I used to work in a construction company, my foreman would call the, the, the cement company to put in his order, and he'd tell them exactly what type of mix he'd want, um, whether for a sidewalk or foundation or whatever, if it was going to be a bit wet or dry, depending on how long it was going to take us to, to do the work, um, with fibers or without all that, would special order according to the needs of the, of the project. But to have a solid foundation, you have to have all those components. Iron rebar by itself won't support a whole lot. Gravel certainly won't, or sand won't support the building. You, you have to have all of those components mixed together, and, and together they support the weight of buildings that go hundreds of feet into the air. I was just looking up the Empire State Building. I, I, I thought it would be interesting to see how much concrete was used for the Empire State Building. And first of all, there's fi- there, is, uh, there were 57,000 tons of steel columns and beams that were used to build the Empire State Building with 62,000 cubic yards of concrete. That's a lot of concrete. A lot of concrete. In addition, by the way, as a little trivia, uh, since I looked it up and I took the time to find the facts, 6,400 windows, that's of interest, and 67 elevators in seven miles of shafts. What a building. Massive building, but 62,000 cubic yards of concrete were used in building the Empire State Building. You know, I also ran across a picture when I was looking into some some research for this, and it's a picture of the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Leaning Tower of Pisa is leaning over a bit, and underneath it says, Mediocrity. It takes a lot less time, and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late. So, you know, how we support buildings makes a difference. So a lot of different components go into making a good foundation, and if it's not made right, the building can sink or can shift. And the same thing is true of our foundation. It must be composed of different core values, all of which are necessary and, in fact, vital if our foundation is to be disaster-proof. So let's go through them. Number one, number one, the first core belief must be repentance. Let's go to Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3, as we begin our review. And we have a statement that is woven into this section that reminds us and the readers that Jesus Christ will return. He is mindful of what's happening on the earth, and he has a hand in everything that's happening. And he says, then verse Verse 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Repentance is going to be part of every single individual who has ever lived in every age. It's going to be a crucial element for each and every human being if they are to be part of God's family. And despite man's disobedience toward God, ultimately, ultimately, each person will experience, will have repentance as part of what makes them what they are. Now, let's just take a moment to review what repentance is, because because it's not in fashion today in our modern society. There's an interesting article by Dr. Meredith back from 2005. It's called The Missing R Word. And he speaks to this fact that it's not in fashion today in our society. And he writes this. He says, no, that our word is not recession, though many economists fear one is coming. It's not even resurrection, though that word is often left out or completely misunderstood by professing Christians. Then what is it? It is the word that God's servants have described again and again as the first step of genuine Christianity, the first step toward eternal life. When John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus Christ's ministry, he began by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he he cites Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. The gospel of Mark records, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So, so, so there are four steps then to repentance. First of all, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This first element of our foundation, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And, and we read here verse 8 where Paul is writing about the first letter he wrote, and he says, Even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Then verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So step number one in terms of repentance is, is sorrow. He says, Continuing, he says, for you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So godly sorrow, sorrow that leads to repentance and a a strong desire to change. This is that sense of guilt that is anathema to our society. Our society says, don't judge instead of I'm wrong. And it's only a a conscience that is pricked by the mind of God through his spirit and his word that experiences that sorrow that leads to repentance. Acts chapter 26, if we back up a little bit to Acts chapter 26, we read the second step in this process of repentance. We see Acts chapter 26 and verse 18 now. Let's back up just a couple of verses. Acts chapter 26, and Paul is is recounting his conversion here. And 
and explaining what happened. He says that God, Jesus, verse 16, said, Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. He says, then he's again recounting this. He says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you. Verse 18, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the second part after that godly sorrow is acknowledging, recognizing that God forgives us. He He forgives us, like the prodigal son we read about. God's a merciful God. And so he forgives. And we can read all the passages in the Bible that explain what that's all about. But if we go as far as we're concerned, we need to go to the next step. Let's go to 1 John chapter 1, because all those verses, they lead us to part number three, inevitably, and that is our part in accepting that he has forgiven us. That he has forgiven us. We cannot continue to carry the burden of guilt. We're not strong enough, and we're never going to be able to pay the price to cover our guiltiness, are we? We're not strong enough to carry that burden of guilt, but Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, covers it. He takes it away. We read in here in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's, we, we, our part is accepting that he has forgiven us. And if we just go back a couple pages in our Bible to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, We find that's reiterated here. Hebrews chapter 10. And I'm just going to go directly to the verse that that reiterates this. Verse 10, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So either we believe that or we don't. But that is our the next step that is required of us. And then finally, Ezekiel chapter 18, the part where we change, where we overcome, where we make that effort to, to become a different person, to, to be more converted, you might say, more changed to the, 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 the pattern of Jesus Christ. Ezekiel chapter 18 And we read in verse 18 or verse 19, we read, Yet you say, why should the son not bear the guilt of the father? Because the son has done what is lawful and right and has kept all my statutes and observed them, he shall surely live. It says, The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And the key, verse 21, if a wicked man turns from all his sins which he has committed, keeps all my statutes, and does what is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So we, through this 
section and other places, we understand that God is supremely fair. And if we do our part to endeavor to change, to, to, to do our part to change to the character of Jesus Christ, then he will, he will help us and he will acknowledge that and he'll strengthen us. So we, very quickly we see this thumbnail sketch of the process of repentance. The question you might be asking is, why, why is he saying that repentance is part of our spiritual foundation? Now, that's a step in, uh, along the, the way, but why are you saying it's part of our spiritual foundation? Well, a couple things. Number one, it shows God that he, we understand what his way is. Because before we can repent, we must know what it is of which we are to repent, right? And, and so it's a matter of right definitions, as we heard about the other day. And, and so we read Psalm 51. If we continue to make that, you might say, spirit of repentance, that willingness to change a part of our life that does not end before baptism, then we are following the example uh, people like like David, for example. We read, after the sin with Bathsheba, he says in Psalm 51, Have mercy upon me, O God, he, he writes and sings, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. I'm reminded of it, I'm aware of it, but I have to be able to move forward. He says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. And he says then, verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Help me to be better. Help me to be clean. Help me to change and not be the filthy man that I was. This is crucial if we are to be the bride of Christ. The, the challenge of making repentance part of our life, not just before baptism and, and not even just before Passover, but part of, of our life as what we are, as part of our very character. I, I'm wrong and I want to do things right. I've fallen down and I want to do better. Help me to battle on so I can... Go beyond this battle and win the war. That, that's part of not just a stepping stone in our process as a Christian. It's, it's part of our, our foundation. Psalm 119, we read, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. And the Psalm 119 is such a, a, a beautiful, poetic reinforcement of this, this spirit and attitude of desiring to walk in God's way, which means Changing, which means repenting. So it's important as part of our spiritual foundation because it continues to show God that we understand and we're learning and we're understanding more and more every day what his way is. If we never repent, that means we don't, we're not showing him that we are understanding that his way is something that we need to, we need to change in order to, to, to reflect. We're not showing an understanding of that concept. We're thinking we're okay. And I'll bet you in God's eyes we're not really okay in every last way. 
You know, that we, there are things we need to change. If you don't believe me, just ask your wife, you know, or ask your best friend who can say, yeah, since you ask, you know, this. We, we, we understand we do need to change, but if we don't make repentance, and as I've described that process, part of our life, we're not showing it. It also shows an attitude of submission and humility and, and love to live his way, a desire to live, because that's what his way is about. Matthew chapter 3, there's this phrase that is, is really fascinating. Matthew chapter 3, and it's reflected later in Acts 26 and verse 20. If you want to jot down another reference, I, I think I, I won't go there, but Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8 is where we're aiming, but we read here about John the Baptist and teaching repentance. And then verse 7, it says, When he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. That's an interesting, and it's a powerful concept. Fruits worthy of repentance. In other words, they, they're acceptable as indicators of repentance to God, not just as defined by us. You know, we might think it's okay to say, God, you know, this is not that big of a deal, and I hope you overlook it. Whereas God might say, no, I'd like to see some actual change in your daily life. This is the way with, um, you know, maybe a coach. Let's say, for example, a coach wants a player to, maybe his batting stance is uh, is, is off. And the coach knows, I'm talking about in, in baseball, and the coach recognizes that he's hurting himself because of his batting stance. So he says, look, I want you, I know it's going to be uncomfortable at first, but I want you to open your stance just a little bit. Your stance is too closed. So step back with your front foot, open it up just a little bit, and, and you'll do better in the long run. And you say, well, okay, yeah, sure, sure, whatever, coach. And you just, you just take a little bit. And then as soon as you look in the other way, you slide that toe back forward. And you go about your, and you know what? You can hit better than when you do it the way he says. Because you're used to it. But if you actually do it the way he says, and, and it, get out of the discomfort zone, at, as time goes forward, you'll be a better hitter. That's what I'm saying. In other words, he says, Fruits worthy of repentance, fruits that that God thinks are worthy, not you as these people who are coming to him. Because they were, in their minds, apparently they were repentant. They felt they could be baptized. But he said, no, no, that's not what we're looking for. So it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating, powerful concept. And so it carries with it all the things that God tells us we're supposed to be doing on a daily basis. How we treat each other how we submit to each other, how we, we work with each other and compromise and lay down our life for each other, be long-suffering and patient and not harsh and not quick to quick to criticize or all, all these things that we learn about in the Bible. If we live by our actions that way and build relationships up rather than tear them down, what we're doing is we're showing that we actually are in the process of repenting. We're changing. We've become more like he describes to us in the book. And we're laying the good foundation that we read, read about at the beginning. So we have a mandate to change, to live Christ's life in us. It's easy to talk about doing these things. It's much harder to follow through. 
You know, there are some people who do hard things, and there are some people who talk about hard things. Which are you? It's easy to talk about them. Do you, do I actually do those hard things? So repentance starts at baptism. We just begin to learn about repentance as we become more attuned to God's way of thinking, and we see uh, more clearly where we need to repent. But there's another part of the foundation that we need to move to, and this is, this is begged by the question, to whom do we repent? What good is repentance if we don't know to whom? Well, you say, well, why God? Of course, we know that. But how do you know God is there? How do you know that Jesus Christ really walked this earth? Well, it takes faith, doesn't it? Faith that God is there, that Jesus Christ really did die for us, that living as we do is really worth it, and that's why the second part of our foundation must be faith. Let's do a check of our faith then quickly. Uh, I want to begin, let's go to Matthew chapter 9, and as you're turning, begin by reading a little quip from a Time editorial that I have in my files here, and it's, it's, it's a, a commentary about an article that was run called The Spirit of Christ, in which different theologians are saying, look, Christ was perhaps a historical figure, but no better. It's that, that type of, a, of approach. And, and, here's the, um, and here's the comment. This is the follow-up letter to the editor that caught my eye. He says, this is Alan Albert Snow, who's of Independent Humanist Ministries. I was delighted to see such an objective and enlightening review of the latest biblical scholarship as it relates to the most likely mythical and non-historical Jesus. It is about time that what biblical scholars have known, believe... Now, I'll read that again so you don't miss that. It's about time that what biblical scholars have known, believed, and taught in seminaries and universities be made widely available. An uncritical, blind acceptance of the Bible as a literally true historical document is definitely a thing of the Dark Ages. This gives you an idea of what type of teaching goes on in theological cemeteries, I mean seminaries and, and, and schools. I really did not intend to say that. It just slipped out. <laughs> I think it's imprinted by, uh, I think Mr. Meredith used to say that. But... But it gives you an idea of the teaching, because this guy is actually, he's saying, look, this is what's being taught. It's about time that this be publicly written about and acknowledged, because this is what the experts know, you see. And what a sad state of affairs when our religious guides are blind. But we don't have blind faith, do we? God doesn't say, have blind faith, and then walk away. How is faith built? Well, Matthew chapter 9, we read that during the time that Christ walked the earth, the people of Christ's day had faith for good reason because Christ was healing and working miracles. So they saw what he did, and they believed. We read here, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole section here. He says, verse 22, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. We read about the woman who was healed as she touched his garment. And it says, Verse 23, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for this girl you thought was dead is not, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. And the report of this went out 
into all that land. People heard of Christ and what he is doing. So they were not going by blind faith because they, they knew what he had done. How was faith built? Well, Christ in that day was healing and working miracles. But we can, for other reasons, John chapter 5, we can read this word and we can read about how the works that are recorded here testified of who he was. And we have, the as not every person who walked around in those days had the benefit of having a copy of all what we call the Old Testament. That was a, a, a something that only the scribes, the scholars, had, had available to them. We have this so we can read it in detail. And we can read all of the... The, the prophecies that were, for, were fulfilled in the New Testament. For example, John chapter 5, and we read here verse 31, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness of which he witnesses of me is, as, is true. He says, You have sent, sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and the shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John, for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. We we were listening to these the characteristics of God's true church and that it would not it would not die. Well, we're standing at a place where we can see the fulfillment of that over the centuries. And we can look at through even through secular history. And we can read about Sabbath keepers who have existed through time. We can read about people who were persecuted for not baptizing their infants and for not worshiping on, on Sunday and for keeping the Passover appropriately, and all these things, we have the ability to look back in a way that these people did not. So we see Jesus Christ living through his church through the ages. It is a church through the ages. And so as a witness to us, we have a whole menu, you might say. We have a a smorgasbord of, of options to look at that can strengthen and build our faith. He says, the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, uh, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. We have those available to us like no other time in history. So, we can build faith, for example, one of many examples, through reading the scriptures and seeing how they bear good fruit in history, in our lives. We can see how it makes sense, the way of life that works. And we can look at the accuracy of the Bible as compared to any other historical document. Romans chapter 1. We can look as perhaps at no time in history at the creation around us. And we can marvel in what we see from the smallest particle to the supernova and the great galaxies that we're even just beginning to glimpse through even the latest telescope, the the James 
Webb Telescope, I guess it's called, that now is bringing, if you, if you want to just spend some time looking at the stars and, uh, it's cloudy outside, go on the internet, type in James Webb Telescope, and they're constantly uploading more pictures of different galaxies, new and different galaxies, and it's just, it just boggles the mind. I, I wish sometimes when I look at them on a computer screen that I, I could instantly be transported to one of these IMAX theaters and be able to have it up, you know, in front just in, in, in massive color because, um, and this is why I think why planetariums are so neat where, you know, you sit back in the chair and you look at the, the, the stars all on the dome above you and you just, and you just marvel. We're at a time like no time in human history where this is really borne out. For we see verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. We have the benefit of his creation to help us to build faith. We're never asked to have blind faith. We have many reasons to have faith. And we see changes in ourselves. We see changes in our relationships, hopefully with others, when we begin to obey God. And when we ask God to give us the love for other people that we don't like. And we find ourselves not liking them just a little bit less. And then maybe not liking them a little bit less more. I think there's something wrong with that statement. But anyway, you understand what I'm saying. When you ask God to give you love for someone that rubs you the wrong way, and when we do it, and we continue to do it, and and actually it works. I've had that experience where literally someone I just didn't like, they probably didn't like me either. And uh, so maybe they were praying and, you know, Hopefully, maybe we were both praying, but I, I know that after a period of time when I made it my, 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 on my prayer list to, to actually ask God to give me patience and love for this person because I, they really rubbed me the wrong way. And, and I woke up one day and it dawned on me that he didn't bug me as much. Now, that may not sound like a lot to you, but considering how much he rubbed me the wrong way, it was a lot. And, and you know, as time went by, it's like he just didn't, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me. And it wasn't Jake either, by the way. I see uh, Jake out here grinning like, oh, he was praying about me. No, it wasn't. It was actually somebody else. But, but, but when our relationships are benefited by God's Spirit working with us, that builds faith because we know that God is real. Faith reflects belief and obedience and repentance. I was going to go to Luke chapter 18 where we read about Faith And Christ asks, will God find faith on the earth? And he goes on. I'm just going to give it to you to add to your notes and think through if you if you would study through it. But he 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 asks the question and then he gives these these stories, these parables about a tax collector and his repentance and humility. And then about little children and showing the attitude of receptiveness of little children. And then the rich man who knew the letter of the law, but didn't understand the spirit which was what the letter was intended to guide us into. And then he goes in the latter part of that section in verses 24 through 30 to, to talk about how our faith is reflected in how we live, whether we live repentance, 
whether we really obey the Spirit as well as the letter of the law. And we, in fact, desire the guidance like a little children, no matter what the cost is to us, the guidance of God, that is. So faith is a confidence in what we're doing by God's command is the best, and what we're doing by God's command is what is right, is what will work for the best, and we believe in that. Because sometimes it goes against every fiber of our human being when we're told to love our neighbor even when they hate us. The third component of our foundation is our baptism. Now, you may have noticed that the first two components were the crucial factors that we must understand before baptism, repentance and faith, like we're preparing for baptism. The third component in our spiritual foundation is baptism. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Faith is not something that we exercise only before baptism and then it's done. It's just a hoop we jump through, a hoop through which we jump, I guess is more accurately said. 1 Peter chapter 3. But baptism is part of our foundation. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 Going to jump right down to the verse, we read, There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh, we're not just taking a bath, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. We believe that we must be baptized. We believe the example of the New Testament bears that fact out. Why do we do it? Well, first, it's an outward act of commitment. It shows our commitment to Christ as our husband, just like marriage. When we go through the ceremony of marriage, everyone knows that we're making this commitment. It is a public commitment to that other person. And that commitment is impressed upon us. We put this ring on our finger. I know that uh, when I got married and and my my father was uh, reading the words in front of me and and my wife was crying next to me. I wasn't sure if she was crying because she was happy or sad. It wasn't really clear at that point. But but as, as he's going on and he's reading these words, the only thought that came into my mind was, wow, this is serious. It was just so, it was just... These words were so, you know, so weighty. And, and, uh, and so I'm thinking that. My wife is crying. Anyway, it was, it was, uh, it was rough. But, but it is a commitment. It is, it is an act. It's a public act of commitment to that other person. And, and it also symbolizes our baptism, that is, symbolizes our total commitment. Let's go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Because we read here in Romans chapter 12 that the commitment of baptism is as if we were put to death. Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, verse 1, Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. That word of sacrifice, willing to, to, to die. Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, 
that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So baptism is that outward act of commitment. It's that symbol of a total commitment. And it also symbolizes becoming clean before God. You know, that's something that we have to do constantly, isn't it? We don't stop, you might say, spiritually speaking. We have to continue to be cleaned up. We don't stop bathing any more than we stop bathing physically. Can you imagine if we just decided, you know, one day, I could see a little boy doing this. I could see myself doing this, I guess. One day saying, look, I've taken a bath. I think I'm done. I think I'm good for now. So it's going to be a while before I do this again. You know, because... You take a bath, isn't that good enough? Well, we don't do that, do we? We, we? we need a bath regularly in order to be clean. Not that we are baptized regularly, but you understand the foundation, the concept of, of, of what baptism is about is, is, is actually applies to us every day. A desire to become cleaned up. A desire to have that sin and that filthiness of our human nature Remove that stink. Exodus chapter 19, we see that when the people came before God to receive the law, that God impressed upon him that their relationship with him needed to be clear, that they needed to be clean to become, to come before him. It was a symbol of the relationship of the, of the difference between God and man. Exodus chapter 19. I can read the whole section here, but you see, he says in the beginning of verse 5, how you're going to be a special people, and they were happy about that. But then he says, look, he says, verse 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their clothes, and let them be ready for the third day. So we see that there was this, this principle of washing themselves, washing their clothes. We read again in verse 14. We read about the priests and how... There was special atonement that was made and uh, special preparations to go into the sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. Why was it? Well, to show them and show the people how sacred, how holy God was. Again, you might say, why is baptism so important as part of our foundation that, that we, we stand on every day? I mean, we're only baptized once, not every week. Yes, that's true. But again... The reasons that we're baptized must always be part of our foundation. We must always remain committed to God just as much today as at our baptism. It is a permanent commitment. You know, and, and permanent is hard to consider in our world of impermanence, isn't it? Things change so quickly that the idea of permanence is it's hard for us to, to grasp. I, mean, I just think about, for example, the use of computers. And it wasn't that long ago before we were using when we were using typewriters. I took typing in high school. Can't imagine now, you know, teaching typing with electric typewriters in schools. It's we're, you know, multiple stages away from that. So we're not we're not used to a world of permanence, especially here in America. You know, some other parts of the world you have. Uh, there are structures that are hundreds and even thousands of years old. We don't have a lot of that in this country. But when we, we let's go to Psalm 37, as far as God is concerned and our relationship with God, that is a permanent arrangement. We need to approach it not just as something that is 
something we can throw away, we can, uh, we can adapt and we can modify. Psalm 37, know that complete commitment is part of our daily life, every day of our life. Psalm 37. He says, depart from evil, verse 27, and do good and dwell forevermore. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. God is in it forever for us. Do we have that same commitment to him? What's the next component of our foundation then? Let's, let's review. We repent because we believe God. We have faith in him. And the next step as we believe in him and want to become right with God is baptism. Our own repentance alone doesn't clean us from sin. Only baptism can do that and the application of Christ's sacrifice for our sins. And as part of the baptism ceremony, just after the baptism itself, we lay hands upon the new babe in Christ and ask for the Holy Spirit. And that is the next part of our foundation of our Christian life. Let's go to Acts chapter 2. So the fourth component of our foundation, just like that concrete that has different components in order to serve its purpose, that fourth component is the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. Acts chapter 2. And we read here as... This audience before Peter were cut to the heart, and they believed what he said. They were repentant, they were sorrowful, and they wanted to be different. We read verse 36, as Peter said then, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized, says in the letter, verse uh, 38, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We read here a few chapters later in chapter 8, Acts chapter 8, how verse 12 When they believed Philip, as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. And then in verse 14 and 15, we read about the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands. When the apostles, verse 14, who were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet it had fallen upon none of them, they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we read of the the importance of the Holy Spirit through the laying on of hands, this gift of the Holy Spirit. We go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And we read verse 2. This is Paul's writing here. He said, This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? So he reminds them the Spirit comes through faith. 
not through their actions. And ironically, then, God's Spirit helps us in our faith as we move forward. And we see in verse 14, again, that the blessing, verse uh, verse 14, I'm breaking into the thought, but he says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So faith, which we've already talked about as a, a component, it works hand in glove with God's Spirit. But But what is it? What is it? It's a gift, but it's a hard-to-comprehend gift, like a, a Rubik's Cube, if you don't know what all these different squares are. What do you do with this thing? It's got all these different colors, and what do you do with it? God's Spirit can be like that. Maybe it's the hardest thing to understand about our foundation. We're physical, and when we talk about the Spirit, we're talking about a different realm. We, we can only see the effect of the Spirit. It's not something that's visible, and, and so it's a challenge, you might say, for us to, to think about it and to understand it unless we begin to learn properly from the Scriptures. We don't learn about it from studying the occult. Um, we don't learn about it through watching movies that, uh, you know, talk about the spirit realm and, and have different ideas. We don't read about it. We don't learn about it through philosophy books and philosophers. There are plenty of those around who will give us ideas about the spirit realm. You see, those explanations pale beside the best description, beside the description that we're given in the script, in the Bible. So the Bible, as we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Bible is the only accurate source of explanation. Why? Well, because God inspired his word to help us understand many things, even things we can't see like his Holy Spirit. You know, God created the universe he created us, the philosopher didn't, and the witch doctor didn't. God created our minds, and he knows how they work, and he knows how his spirit works, and he is best able to give the explanation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So God works through his Spirit to help us to understand what he has in store for us and how he wants us to live and to think. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. It says, verse 13, These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolish, foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yes, he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ through the Spirit of God. And we are thankful that we've been given God's Spirit. Without it, even with God's laws, we'd be no better off than the ancient Israelites. Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians 3, and verse 14, 
We read how the Holy Spirit strengthens us in the inner man. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all things, all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church of Christ Jesus, by Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, God's Spirit, and we've just scratched the surface here, but we're in this review of the elements in our foundation. God's Spirit is that which helps us to be able to implement some of these other attributes. Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. We read something here. We read verse 8. Verse 7, let's back up and get a running start at it. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that he will reap. Galatians chapter uh, chapter 6 and verse 7. Then verse 8, for he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Hope of everlasting life. This is where we go for the last component of our foundation. Let's go to James chapter 1. So the last component of our foundation that should undergird every day of our life is the resurrection of God and eternal judgment that we look forward to so we can have the opportunity to be part of his family. So there is a future for us. I don't know if, maybe I'm just weird, I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but have you ever thought about what it would be like to live forever, what that's going to be, how that's going to feel. What, what does that, I mean, how does that, how does that happen? What's it going to be like? I mean, I can understand living for, you know, 28 or 29 years or a little bit more than that, but, but I can understand that. But where, go down, you know, a year, two, five, 10, 15 years later, and then what will it be like? And then what will it be like? And then what will it be like? And then when a thousand years have passed, what will it be like? And then when a billion years have passed, what is eternity? I, my mind begins to just sort of blink out after a while. What is it going to be like in 500 billion, zillion, quadrillion, Uncle Philian? That's one of our words. We have a, uh, my, my brother-in-law's name is Phil, and as our kids were growing up, we, I don't know, somehow we, we had Uncle Philian as, as the infinite number. We called, we said, you know, a trillion, quadrillion, Uncle Philian. And that's how we, they learned about Uncle Philian's name. So, I don't know why I'm sharing this with you. Honestly, this is, this is very personal and family private. But, what's it going to be like in a zillion years from now to still be cognizant? Well, that's our future. And I don't understand it. Truly, you know, we, we, there's a lot for God to reveal, but that is what's in store for us. James chapter 1, 
and verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, real life, you know, eternal life, not physical life, which is not really real life, because it's not as real as eternal life, right? And eternal life is really real, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. We have the opportunity with this, you might say, the measuring stick of enduring temptation in our development. We have the opportunity, ultimately, to have real life. And that that colors, that influences the way we function, doesn't it? Because knowing that, doesn't that mean when the person that bugs you or you're impatient with because they were impatient with you, that you don't strike back at them or, you know, that letter or that email or that hasty word or whatever, you bite your tongue, you, me, we bite our tongue. Why? It's because if we can... We have all eternity in store for us. If when we are subject, when we feel that, that bad habit, you know, we have that sense of that bad habit falling back into it, into it. Doesn't the fact that if we can say, no, I'm not, I'm going to go this way instead, should that not be driven by the fact that we have eternal life in store if we simply can not, or, or do, as the case may be, according to God's law. So, resurrection and eternal judgment should be part of what colors our thoughts, what makes our day, makes us so we live the way we do. Eternal life, the resurrection, this is that last component in our foundation. That is our last, the last component. Well, I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 6 because you may be saying, where did you cobble these together? I mean, you went up there and you said these are the foundation elements and why am I to believe you? Don't You don't have to believe me. But I think if we're going to start this year as we are in this first month of the year and we're going to, we're going to start off having a good year, maybe it's a good time to think about the foundation. And maybe it's a good time to analyze our foundation. Do a little foundation testing. And, and But if we're going to do it, we have to understand why these elements are part of our life now, today. Not just stages through which we pass. Baptism, repentance, etc. These aren't just stages. They're, they're part of our mindset. They're part of what makes us tick. We read Hebrews chapter 6 then. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. And this does not mean that the things which come after this are lesser than. It means that by exercising these things, as is explained throughout the rest of God's word, we become better. So we can either exercise them poorly or we can exercise them with perfection. It's not as if these are lesser it's as if these are the, the starting point, the building point upon which everything else grows. And this is what we read. Leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation 
of repentance from dead works, number one, and of faith toward God. Of the doctrine of baptisms, I repeat, it's not something that we just understand for a part of our life. It's a doctrine that helps as a foundation in every day of our life. If we understand the meaning of laying out of hands, which you discussed, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. You know, in the millennium and after, baptism will not be necessary for us as spirit beings, but we will appreciate how holy God is. Repentance will not be part of our life as spirit sons of God, but, but our attitude will forever be one of humility and submission to God's way. Laying out of hands, representing the involvement of God's spirit, well, that's not going to be part of our pr- procedure. We will be Holy Spirit beings, composed of holy, righteous spirit like God. The resurrection will be passed for us, we hope, and we'll have that positive eternal judgment We'll be experiencing it. So all these elements will continue to be part of our life, even as the physical ramifications may not be taking place. But these foundation doctrines and the understanding that's built upon them, they help us. It teaches us, guides us, and brings us into understanding of God's way. And they're vitally important because they are foundation, the foundation for our life not just religious-sounding catchphrases. In all this talk of foundations, let us not forget what we read in 1 Corinthians 3, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 9 for we are God's fellow workers you are God's field you are God's building he says according to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder i have laid the foundation and another builds on it but for each, each let each one take heed how he builds for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold silver precious stones wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. So he says then, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the the world or life or death of things present or things all to come, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God. So these foundational elements, they are the mind of Christ. And when we build on these, we are building on 
on Christ's mind, his priorities, his, 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 his approaches, his principles, his way of thinking to help us. And this is what we read about in Ephesians 2. We read about being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being himself being the chief cornerstone. You know, ultimately, if our body is, is burned, we can recognize that the foundation is something that lasts even in the spiritual realm, even as our own physical tabernacle perishes. So our hearts and our minds must be filled with these core convictions that define what we think, what we do, what we say. And as we begin the year, I think it's important that we we look at those foundational elements and we understand the breadth and the depth of them and how they apply to our life now, each and every day. You know, they must continue to be illustrated in our life, in our actions, in our thoughts. These are not stages through which we pass, but ever-present bedrock in our spiritual temple. And we can't get away with missing any of the components. Can we take one out or say, that one, that's just not me. I'm not so good at that element, but you know what? I'm pretty good at the others, so it's okay. Just try, imagine doing that with, with concrete. Well, I'm just going to leave the lime out. I'm just going to leave the, the, the gravel or the sand. I'm not going to put any water in it. We'll just put all these components there, and we'll build on top of it. It'd be ludicrous, wouldn't it? But somehow we sometimes think that we can, it's okay that this little corner of our, what we're about, yeah, well, it's not so good, but you know what? It's good enough. Wouldn't be good enough if you're building the Empire State Building on it, would it? You know, our nation and the, the basic moral and ethical foundation of our nation is, is rotting away. And with hard times looming, you know, it, it, we can grieve to see the collapse that's imminent. But there will come a time when our cities and our towns will be rocked to their foundations physically as well. If we read the prophecies of what will the, the, the things that will come upon the earth, including the earthquakes that will rock this earth. But in our land, it's not just California that will crumble, I think, as we look long term. I just want to read you something here it's, as I conclude here. It's uh, from the U.S. News and World Report about the big one. It says, when the big one finally comes, it may well hit someplace other than California. While that state has more earthquake activity, much of the Midwest is at risk for large and potentially more dangerous earthquakes. Three of the nation's largest earthquakes ever have occurred not on the West Coast, but in the center of the country. In December of 1811 and January and February of 1812, an area near the town of New Madrid in southeastern Missouri was rocked with successive earthquakes estimated to range from 8.4 to 8.8 on the Richter scale. By the way, that is approximately 500 times more powerful than the earthquakes recently in Turkey. 500 times more powerful. It says, the Mississippi River flowed backward and changed course. Bells rang in Boston church towers and chandeliers shook in the Capitol in Washington, D.C. You know, we can be vulnerable and not even really know it. We can be vulnerable spiritually 
and not know it. And the, the antidote, you might say, is the building code. We have a building code that's been given to us by God for our foundation, if we're willing to follow it. So, I close by asking this. Is your foundation sure? When will your, when will my big spiritual earthquake come? Now, we can turn our early warning system on, asking God to show us where we need to change as he helps us with our inspection, you might say, what we need to overcome. However, you know, we, we just can't know the situation that may explode into our life and shake us down to our spiritual foundation. So preparedness, constant preparedness is the key. So the question is, Will you, will I be prepared? Is your spiritual foundation rock solid and earthquake safe?